that's that's um, that's how partners can help one another to co through the process of co-regulation. And the opposite of that is codependency or enmeshment, where one partner gets scared, one partner's trauma response goes, and then the other partner gets angry or gets scared also. And then the next thing you know, you know, there's escalation. Um, you know, that's the really the negative, negative side effect or consequence of a trauma response. Welcome everybody to the podcast, Relationships. Let's talk about it. I'm Prevo Toplitsky. I'm a psychotherapist specializing in relationship issues. Everybody's got one. Partners, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, relationships. Let's talk about it. everybody to this episode of trauma and relationships and i have a conversation with a returning guest very good friend of mine colleague Corey costanzo those of you that haven't heard Corey before tell you a little bit more about him he is the co-owner of Asheville still point wellness spa an incredible spa that has saltwater flotation tanks and the world-renowned Esalen Massage. And you can find out more information about Corey and Still Point Wellness Spa at stillpointwell.com. And Corey is a licensed addiction counselor, a trauma specialist, a somatic experiencing practitioner, and a master didgeridoo player. I love my conversation with Corey. He is a plethora of information. I like that word, plethora. I like how to say it too. And before we get on to the conversation with Corey, just want to remind you, you can go to my website, prepo.com. You can sign up for my newsletters there. You can also check out more information about my therapy practice and my coaching practice. And I greatly appreciate all of you that are spreading the podcast to people that you think would benefit from it. And also, if you are inclined and feel moved to donate financially to the podcast to keep it going, you can go to my website, prepo.com, click on the podcast page, and you can support the podcast with a one-time donation or a reoccurring donation. It is greatly appreciated. Okay, everybody, this is airing the week of Thanksgiving, I believe. So there's a little bit added stress, added stress of traveling and being around family. So I'm going to heed my own words about being more patient, being more kind, being more grateful for the people around me, and be more present. Put the damn phone down, folks. <laughs> Okay, and in the vein of Thanksgiving, I am so, so grateful for all of you out there, my listeners who inspire me to keep this going. Wishing you all a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. 
Okay, here we go, folks. My conversation with Corey Costanzo on trauma and relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about it. back so good to be here again prepo yeah it's been a while it has yeah you uh sent a child off to college and that's a big transition for mamma mia (laughs) it's amazing because she's in new york city and that's where i grew up and that's where my whole family is too so Mm. it is beyond our wildest dreams i never could have imagined her going to school in New York City and it just all worked out that way. Mm. I feel so lucky. Nice. When are you going to see her again? Uh, this weekend coming up, actually. Oh, wonderful. You're going to go up there or she's coming home? I am. I'm going up there um, to introduce her to all my college friends that have been getting together since college, uh, doing like Friendsgiving and she'll get to meet all of them and hear all sorts of stories. Ah, cool. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to hearing about it. Yeah. Yeah, brother. Well, here we go. Trauma. You are a trauma specialist. So you're the, the man to do this conversation with. And, you know, I um, I think many people uh, have a understanding of what trauma is. We'll talk about the big T's, little T's, chronic trauma, acute trauma, but it really affects relationship and, and the way that... Uh, our lives are going faster and faster and what's going on with the world and the anxiety that we're hearing of wars and other things and people are affected by trauma. But I wanna really talk about how it shows up in, in relationships so people can get an inclining of, ah, this is a, a dynamic from the trauma and it's not necessarily the person that's bringing it in, they're bringing in their trauma. Yeah. Absolutely. And I like to think of it that uh, when someone experienced something traumatic, there was a force, there was an energy that came into their system too fast for them to process, for their body to process, for their mind to process. So think like acute is like car accidents or uh, somebody was maybe assaulted, um, some act of aggression in some way, shape or form. And, and, um, and they just couldn't process it in time, or maybe they tripped and they fell really fast. And you know, when that happens, the nervous system doesn't have an opportunity uh, to really, really process it and to and to work with it. So um, when that person gets triggered, then via a memory or seeing someone that might have looked like a perpetrator, or maybe they're driving on the same similar street as where they had an accident or something like that, uh, then you know the nervous system will, will wanna keep that person safe. And with unprocessed trauma, then the body, uh, the body will react in such a way as if it's happening right now, right here and now. And that's when it's PTSD. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a little trivial, but when I was uh, a freshman in college, I went against uh, a senior pitcher who threw the ball 94 miles an hour, 95 miles an hour, and I got hit um, in, in uh, just above the elbow. And for months, 
I it was flinch. It was constantly flinching when I got up to the batter's box of that, and and it's just that you know it just reminds me again of what you just said of how we keep the history of that experience in our body and we repetitively create a pattern of reaction. And so I think people that have had trauma in their lives, they create this pattern in their relationship. And sometimes people don't recognize what that pattern is. Yeah, we want to avoid pain and we want to avoid that happening again. So we defend against that. And for you, it was the flinching that mm-hmm. you were defending against against that. And- um, but, but I came back, man, I stopped that flinching and I-, I How'd you do it? Um, what I did was um, just focused on, I, I always focused on hitting the ball right back up the middle. And to me, it was just this focus of, um, a, yeah, a laser focus. So it wasn't more about uh, focusing on my past. I was focusing on what's going to happen in the future, not what's going to happen in the past. And I'm wondering what that does with, with couples because, you know, a chaotic pattern starts to come about. People start to anticipate, let's say, um, abandonment because maybe they had some trauma. Trauma and divorce, that's a big one for people. Uh, that they expect to be abandoned or they expect to be cheated on. And so they create these coping mechanisms and w- and some of the coping mechanisms like are- avoidance. Right. Right. So I'm going to avoid anything difficult for fear of rocking the boat. You know, I'm not going to put up boundaries because, because if I put up a boundary, then my current partner might leave me like my other partner, so I'm going to let these things go mm-hmm. and 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 uh, not call them out on it, you know, and that will just uh, lead to an unsustainable uh, power dynamic in the relationship. And and what about like even recreating that, like to to try to avoid it, but in some way to recreate the chaos because it's known. So I think whether it's unconscious or sometimes conscious, they may. Um, create the chaos because they know chaos. Exactly. Like their nervous system is wired for chaos. So if somebody grew up in a family system where there was a lot of chaos and especially in an addicted family system uh, or an alcoholic family system, um, and that chaos will set up that child's nervous system to feel comfortable in the chaos. So you always hear, you know, so many stories of people saying, oh gosh, why do I always pick a partner that is just so not good for me? Like, why do I bring this on myself? And really it's because that feels comfortable. That level of chaos brings a sort of, a sort of comfortability in the body that even though that person cognitively in their mind, they're like, oh, I do not like to live this way, you know, their body is always hypervigilant, waiting, waiting for, for the chaos to happen. So it sets up their, their neurocircuitry um, for that to happen. You probably hear this. I hear this with clients. I, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. Oof, so that's eggshells. Exactly. So it's interesting because I'm, I'm also thinking that um, when there is peace, 
that's a really challenge for people because they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. So they can't drop into the piece. They can't mm-hmm. drop into the connection. So sometimes, like you said, they create the chaos because that's what's known. They just can't enjoy it because we, you know, many couples, they say, wow, we did, we can't go uh, without a week or, you know, longer than a week and then something happens. And a lot of times it's that part of the trauma that needs to be created. Good one. Hmm. Yeah. I'm also... Oh, I want to tell you a story real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, my daughter Sophia is a freshman in college and she went on a date with someone and so I said, yeah, how'd the date go? Are you going to go on a second date? And she said, I don't know. You know, this person's got a lot of trauma in their their life and, um, you know, it was really nice to hear all about that and... um, and I just listened, I, I, you know, I didn't really like say much or ask as many follow-up questions. And then a couple of days later, I, you know, I talked to her and I was like, oh, okay, so how did it go? Did you decide to go on a second date? And she was like, you know, I felt myself wanting to, wanting to be with that person to help them, to fix them, to, mm. to help them with their trauma. And I don't think that's the best way to be in relationship with somebody. Man, Man, you were happy that she she learned that. Fact. Did she learn that from you? Do you think? I don't know. <laughs> I'd like uh, to take credit, but uh, she she's she's a smart cookie. She, on her own. Yeah, she really is. Hmm. And um, oh, but wait a second. You mean she learned that from me because Robin married me because of my trauma? <laughs> I, no, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, was that a backhanded compliment? <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, and many people don't do that off the bat, right? They don't recognize yeah. I'm going to rescue a role. Yeah. And I'm going right. to get something out of it as opposed to, I mean, because there's some sense of feeling power, feeling um, the stable one, you know, they get to play the stable role. But the rescuer, that's a that's a, uh, a juicy and, and addictive uh, um personality pattern it's also very often not a sustainable pattern in relationship because then the power dynamic just really really gets off gets mm-hmm. off in relation especially if one person's not doing their own work mm-hmm. yeah how do you think self-esteem um plays in a role for people with with trauma you know um i'm just thinking about people that have had trauma a lot of times there's a lot of inner critic or, or self-esteem issues. And that really shows up in, in detriment into their relationship because then they can't, um, they don't feel equal in the relationship. They can't take accountability in many ways because they feel blamed. Um, they show up in ways of not being able to support the other person and feel like they can be the partner that they want to be. How do you see trauma relating to self-esteem? I, in a lot of relationships that have enmeshed patterns and codependent dynamics, I feel like the person's self-esteem becomes based on their partner's um, emotional state. So if their if their partner is angry, then they have a really hard time differentiating from that person, and they feel triggered or they feel 
they're not able to access joy and ease. And I feel like trauma very often when it shows up early in life, it will set somebody's nervous system up to be dependent on someone else's nervous system. Hmm. So like, you know, in a healthy family system, there's the parents are the master regulators of that family system. And part of their job is to, is to console a child and to, and to help teach them you know, day by day, month by month, year by year, how to differentiate and how to navigate their own nervous system. And what trauma will do in a family system when the nervous system of the family system is chaotic uh, or there's neglect going on, then that child growing up won't have that sense of co-regulation and won't develop a sense of self-esteem where they know they feel confident that they can handle things on their own. So then when they become adults and they become in committed relationships or any relationships, then they become dependent or codependent on their partner for their own nervous system regulation. Hmm. Yeah. And self-esteem I think is deeply intertwined or lack of self-esteem is deeply intertwined with that. And then their, their sense of self is um, linked or coupled with their partner. And it's very dangerous. I mean, it's almost like an addiction. It's almost like a love addiction when that when that happens and the roots of that i would i would feel safe to say are is trauma hmm. so then that really probably shows up around like child uh child abuse child sexual abuse because my experience with many clients that have experienced that there is a a level of of lower self esteem uh from from sexual abuse uh because they weren't uh, regulated by the parent. The parent didn't take care of them in that way. Even if it wasn't the parent that did the sexual abuse, there is a still a feeling of the parent didn't protect them. And maybe the parent didn't protect them because the mind then goes, was I worthy of love? Was I worthy of protection? And I think that that takes a huge blow to, to self-esteem. And then, of course, the challenges of adult, a healthy adult sexual relationship comes into play and then that lower self-esteem. People usually have more challenges from sexual abuse in earlier childhood. They have challenges in a healthy adult sexual relationship. So that takes a blow on their self-esteem. Absolutely. Sexual abuse, neglect, physical abuse, emotional abuse, you know, inconsistent parenting. Yeah, it all it all has a uh, huge effect. It, it's an adverse childhood experience. Mm-hmm. You know, the ACE, the ACE studies that were done in the 80s, I think, um, were really groundbreaking for understanding how trauma and um, childhood experiences um, that were traumatic plays into an adult's life in a negative way. and they did this a study that's been replicated many, many times over all over the world. And thousands and thousands of 
participants in this study is a longitudinal study and and they and they tracked um, adverse childhood experiences like abuse, neglect, uh, parents divorce, um, a parent being incarcerated, an addict parent, a whole bunch of different kinds of adverse childhood experiences. Living in poverty is one. Um, witnessing abuse. And they matched, they matched it up with that child that had those adverse experiences as adults and they, and they tracked them and they found that there was a direct correlation between incarceration rates for the adults, addiction rates, mental health issues as an adult, um, relationship issues, divorce, and all sorts of relationship issues and health issues as well, mm. lower lifespan. And it was all positively correlated to how many adverse child ex experiences you've had. Mm. They're called the ACE studies. And mm. it was groundbreaking for the social justice movement because they realized that if you grew up in poverty, then you are more likely, then that's a higher ACE score and you're more likely. So that explains now, you know, why certain groups of people are, you know, might have not as much wealth and not enough, uh, not as many opportunities and, and higher education and all that. You could trace it right back to childhood. So then a lot of the government social programs were modeled against these on these ACE studies so mm. that they can really help help our community so mm. everybody gets some help. That just came to mind when you were talking about how do you think that plays when in childhood when one parent um, abandons the child? You know, I've had many clients that one of their parents left them at a very young age. How do you think that that plays later on in their adult relationships around mistrust, around abandonment? And how do you think that they replay that? Um, because in some way that the fear is um, that they might need to control their environment more. I think a people that have a high controlling factor is the reason is that they fear the chaos. They fear maybe the abandonment, they fear um, uh, shows up in intense jealousy uh, because they want to really control the the situation. Absolutely, yeah. These are these are the kind of things that that lead to relationship difficulties later on in life. And you know, the work that we do as uh, therapists and counselors, and you know, we could we really help people. To get to get uh, vulnerable and present to notice those effects and the, make connections about about those those effects. Like I imagine jealousy for one, or controlling behavior. You know, for you to work with a couple as a relationship counselor, and 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 really process that and find the root, get to the root of that being fear of abandonment. That must be so liberating for that couple. I can only imagine, only imagine that leading to such a beautiful insight and, you know, freeing of life force energy. Yeah. Cause when I was working with a couple that 
you know, the realization of the controlling issues that this person showed up with was, um, was lack of trust and not just lack of trust of her partner or the other people in her life, but just lack of trust in, in the universe per se, right? Lack of trust of her life that she'll be able to respond to any situation that would come up. And that's where, again, self-esteem comes because I believe if you, if you have um, a stronger sense of self, then you will have confidence that you'll respond to a situation. You don't know what the fuck it will be, but you know that you will be able to respond. And I think people that come from that controlling way to ward off abandonment or ward off uh, somebody leaving them, they don't just trust their life's path. Yeah, it's very limiting, right? And and, and I think that's the that's the problem with unprocessed trauma is that it limits somebody's life. What's on unprocessed trauma? Unprocessed trauma would be like, let's say somebody was um, betrayed in a relationship and rather than letting themselves like really feel the grief of that betrayal, maybe getting some support, however that support looks like, um, and staying with staying with themselves during that process, they might go out and find a new partner like right away. So that's unprocessed trauma because in the, the the trauma just gets repressed or suppressed and you know pushed down, and then at some point it'll start coming out sideways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So the problem with that is then then it really limits somebody's ability to to live life to their potential because if they're hyper vigilantly waiting for the shoe to drop and then you know they're missing the rainbow in the sky if they're if they're always looking at their partner to see who their partner's looking at for fear of them cheating on them or something something like that mm-hmm. yeah and and you know i feel that my trauma, and I've got lots of it that I've worked with over the years, has really, I've really been able to turn it around so that it actually becomes a beautiful part of me rather than, rather than something that has negative consequences. And it kind of reminds me of this Japanese art of um, pottery. I'm going to butcher the uh, name, but it's uh, Kintsukuroi. Hmm. Kintsukuroi. And it means to repair with gold. Hmm. It's the art of repairing pottery with gold or silver lacquer and understanding that that piece is more beautiful for having been broken. And I really, I really love that concept of repair. And once I started having the uh, courage and the ability to repair some of my early childhood trauma and some trauma that I experienced in an accident in my mid-20s, I was able to tap into a deep wellspring of love of life that led me to the work that I do today, which is helping other people to do the same. Mm-hmm. 
So I just want to encourage anyone listening, if if you're getting activated at all by this conversation, because some of your early childhood trauma is starting to kind of bubble up and you're feeling some emotion, I really encourage you to stay with it. Put a hand on your heart, your belly, and breathe into those spaces and really trust that that's the body's way of saying, hey, look at me. It's okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. And you know, when you're on the other side of that, I mean, it it might just be more beautiful than you ever imagined was possible. Hmm. I'm curious of how you work with clients that um you you gently offer them an awareness that how they just behaved in an unhealthy way in their relationship is a is a um trauma trigger, it's a trigger response to their trauma. So you, to help them put it together, that the reason why they said that or did that to their partner was because there was unprocessed trauma. You know, maybe the way that their mother um, would interrogate them or treat them is now seeing that their wife is treating them that way. How do you bring that attention? slowing it down that's the most important and it's so simple technique if somebody's getting activated to where they're beyond their window of tolerance you know to deal with difficult emotions then slowing things down giving them an opportunity to feel their body is really the way the way to do it and um, you know, I love using self-touch because it really uh, helps me or somebody else to to get present and to stay with difficult sensations that happen in their body. So touching their belly, touching their chest. Yeah, something mm-hmm. something like that. Like, or maybe their thighs, or even just feeling their feet on the ground and their backside supported by the chair. You know, that will help someone to to stay in their body because. Mm-hmm. You know, most often when somebody gets triggered and there's a trauma response, they leave their body because it just does not feel comfortable. You know, that's you know, we hear this that trauma, trauma uh, rewires their brain for disconnection, not connection. Right. And I think that's that's the big part that people have to realize is people that experience trauma or high level of trauma, they're they're actually been rewired for disconnection. They so desperately want connection, but that's been kind of like severed. So what they say, what they do is actually reinforcing the disconnection because that's how the rewiring happens. Because it, 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 it hurts to connect to their yeah. bodies. Like it just doesn't feel and good. And to somebody else. And to somebody else, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I help someone to slow it down and then turn towards the difficult emotion, the difficult sensations, to breathe into it. And then I help them to co-regulate. Like I help them to self-regulate by co-regulating. Meaning? Meaning when I'm bearing witness to their process, to what they're going through, I'm feeling my feet on the ground. I'm feeling my belly. I'm present with myself and I'm present with them as well. And I hold the hope inside of me that they'll be able to do what I'm asking them to do, what I'm inviting them to do, which is stay present. So would you 
advise that for the other partner that doesn't have a trauma response for them to regulate themselves so that their presence helps regulate their partner? Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. And that's, that's, um, that's how partners can help one another to co through the process of co-regulation. The opposite of that is codependency or enmeshment where one partner gets scared, one partner's trauma response goes, and then the other partner gets angry or gets scared also. And then the next thing you know, you know, there's escalation. Um, that's the really the negative, negative side effect or consequence of a trauma response. And there are some great books out there and resources um, that make it pretty easy. Like in the last 10 years, there's been a renaissance on the nervous system and understanding ways to self-regulate and to co-regulate and, and attachment theory and all, all sorts of great, great resources out there. Hmm. What do you think people, um, what do you think, uh, maybe this is a silly question, but I'm just thinking of why people avoid processing their trauma. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I think it's super scary. Super scary. They don't. They don't think that they're going to have the capacity to deal. They. They. You know. Subconsciously, they think that it's going to be so scary that they're going to lose it. Maybe. Mm -hmm. You know. I mean, everyone's different, of course. But like, I think in general, people um, use coping mechanisms to avoid really dealing with something that they're that they're afraid of that they're afraid of of the consequence of happening and and it typically has to do with like a death or like a, a psychological death or you know because a lot of the stuff starts in 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 um in infancy in in early childhood middle childhood and you know, like a kid that's been physically abused, let's say, like they had to learn to not talk back to their parent, not express themselves authentically. Otherwise they run the risk of getting hurt, but not only getting hurt. I mean, you have someone that's, you know, three, four times taller than you and much stronger than you, someone that feeds you, somebody that buys you the things that you need to live. And if you're not able to express your authentic voice with that person, then really it's, it's you're preserving your life by repressing and suppressing your natural instincts. And, and, you know, that kind of pattern can stay with a person all throughout adulthood and really um, limit somebody's life force, their creativity, limit their thinking, their their ability, like their intelligence, you know, because if I'm always having to spend all of my energy tracking my parent to see how I need to show up so that they don't, they don't uh, threaten my life, then I'm not thinking creatively. I'm mm -hmm. not, 
I'm not using all of my natural born intelligence. Or your authenticity. Or your authenticity, yeah, right. that's right. Yeah, that shows up a lot when when people had to track their uh, their safety as a kid, track people around them. They're constantly doing that in their adult relationships. And it either feels very limiting to the other person, very controlling, or a lot of uh, misconstruing of what reality is. Because they're really not seeing it from the flow, they're seeing it from their trauma with the lens of usually what's worse than what is. And um, yeah, that's kind of in, in, in their own prison. Yeah, I imagine it's hard for you when you work with couples when one person has experienced trauma and and is using these coping mechanisms that actually l might look like they're being abusive towards their spouse or their or their partner that must be very challenging for you to bear witness to that because if you call that person out on their defense mechanisms they might start defending even more so and trying to justify their position and digging their heels in, yeah, you know, and here you are like, you know, trying to let them see that how they're behaving and acting is actually causing harm. And they don't see it that way. They see it as they're protecting themselves. So that must put you in a really challenging- Yeah, it's also challenging, challenging because, or they can go straight to their inner critic and feel blamed and shamed oh. by, I mean, but just bringing that awareness there. So the triggers are just, you know, constant. So when people are doing their own work, I think, you know, when when they're doing their own individual work to recognize their behavior without shame, because the, the you know, the shame structure and the shame attacks that people do to themselves take away their own accountability to change their behavior. And I think, that's one of the most challenging things that partners have with each other is when one's not taking accountability of their behavior or what they just said or what they did did that was unhealthy in the relationship. And there's a lot of defending and um, or gaslighting taking place of that wasn't the person's reality and yeah. I mean, the good news with all this is that there are some awesome tools and techniques and information out there now for anybody that's experienced trauma to really move to the other side. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I, I see it all day long and when it happens, it is beautiful. It is intoxicating for me as a trauma therapist to sit and bear witness to somebody that has not only a cognitive insight but of like a full body experience of spaciousness after living a lifetime of constriction and suppression to then move to spaciousness and flow. I mean, it is the resonance in the room for me becomes just such a miracle for mm. me to sit with and bear witness to. And that's why I, I mean, I could do this work 24 seven if Robin would let me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much, Prepo. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely my path. And it's all born out of some very big T traumas. 
that happened to me, you know? So again, I just wanna talk directly to anybody if this resonates with you. If you've experienced some really hard times in your life, in early childhood, middle, late, early adulthood, whatever, just know that there's help out there. Like there's really wonderful people out there and a whole field of professionals that are just waiting to serve and waiting to sit with you and you know help you to get to the other side. Hmm. And what would you say to people that um, see that they have some trauma responses, but they don't believe that they had any of the big T's that we call it, you know, near death experiences, um, sexual molestation, rape, uh, imprisonment. Um, but what would you call a series of, of little T's? Cause we're talking uh, acute or chronic and that the accumulation of chronic little T's, what would that be? What I, so I, I think it boils down to needs and like was somebody's needs getting met? You know, like take somebody that may have grown up in a very wealthy family. They had all their their financial needs met. You know, they went to the best schools, they had the best nannies and they had you know all the food that they needed and the toys and the books and everything that they needed but their parents weren't there to console them, you know, or to congratulate them. And they, there were some needs of connection and authenticity that might not have been, presence that might not have been there. Then, you know, day after day after day of that, like that takes a toll on that child's sense of self-worth and self-efficacy and you know, that's trauma that can mm. lead to PTSD. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Just as much as any other of the traumas that we named earlier. And mental illness being so prevalent, a child that had a parent or parents that were mentally ill, yeah. their needs were not met. Their emotional needs were not met. Sometimes their physical needs, but especially their emotional needs. The child then had to take care of their parents' emotional needs in, in some way. Right. but theirs is a met. So in some way they they don't know how to get their their needs met as an adult. They're they usually go about it in a mm, in an off-putting way because they never got their needs met and they're so desperate to get their their needs met. So there's then the neediness, right, comes um with that energy. Not only that, but then that adult will try to meet other people's needs from the place of their inner child. Like that people pleasing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so they'll have a very um, early childhood, uh, not a fully formed adult nervous system in meeting someone else's needs in a differentiated way. You know, like, so if, if a child grown up needed to really be the parent, you know, then when that child grows up and they're in relationship, they might find themselves like um, doing that with their spouse, you know? Um, and it might be a very 
uh, immature way that they're trying to meet their spouse's needs. Al-Anon is really good for that, actually. And a lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people think that Al-Anon is a recovery system for somebody who is currently in relationship with uh, an alcoholic or, uh, some, or, or an addict of some sorts. And it's also extremely helpful for somebody that grew up in a family system where there was mental illness or there is currently mental illness in their family system. It's a 12-step recovery so that you learn how to have boundaries, healthy boundaries, and you learn how to relate to that person in a successful way. Hmm. So boundaries for uh, the partner of somebody that has a lot of trauma, that's that would be a big focus for them to understand what is theirs, um, where they end and their partner begins, how to keep themselves safe, not about pushing the other person away. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Like um, boundaries. If, if my partner has negative coping mechanisms to deal with their trauma, like uh, all or nothing thinking, black and white thinking, you know, um, where they might uh, they, they might get triggered easily, and you know, conflict is not easy easy for them to deal with. Um, some other other relational sabotage, the inner critic, mistrust. Then, so if if I'm in relationship with somebody that's had trauma like trauma like that, then it's very important for me to get my own my own support so that I can learn how to show up for that person. I can learn how to help that person um, understand that this is a trauma trigger to them and I can advocate for them to get some support. The most important thing is just showing up for myself. Hmm. Yeah. And I think just to put out to people, once, once the trauma is really named and taken uh, ownership of and worked through, um, people can start shifting that dynamic. It's when it's it's unsaid, when it's unspoken, and it's just seen as just a uh, unhealthy relationship dynamic. That's when it gets really confusing. And I, so I think like people need to name their trauma. They need to work on their trauma. They need to take accountability of their trauma. They need to understand their trauma responses. That um, uh, this person, my partner is going out with their friends and I'm getting angry. It's not about that my partner is not loving towards me or that my partner is a wild partier. It's because I'm having a trauma response of being abandoned or I'm having a trauma response that I can't celebrate my partner's joy outside of my own connection to them. And I think a lot of people that have show up with trauma and relationship, they, like you said, they can't differentiate them. They can't, they can't celebrate their partner's um, positive interactions. That's right, because it's just so scary. Right. It becomes, it becomes really limiting. Yeah. Yeah, I want to talk about the window of tolerance. And trauma shortens the window of tolerance. And... And 
when when the window of tolerance is really small, it becomes really easy to get overactivated, to get to get uh, triggered really easily. And you can you can if you go like on the if you can visualize a window, then you go like up is hyper arousal, meaning like heartbeat increases. You know, you want to like fight, you want to run. Um, your nervous system gets activated in that in that way. Or you can you can go below the window and that's hypo arousal. And that's like um, the freeze response. And that might look like depression. And you know, both those are somatic or body oriented strategies that our nervous system does when we get dysregulated, when we get overactivated, when we're not um, in a balanced, in a balanced place. So um, what we want to do in order to avoid that is do practices that might help increase the window of tolerance. So exercise is a great one. Meditation, mindfulness practices. What do you do with people that freeze a lot? What, what would be some techniques to help them um, notice that it's actually freezing? And like I, I tell people, you know, to instead of trying to verbalize what they're experiencing, or what they want to communicate, to actually just shake their body mm. and to make some sounds to actually mm-hmm. move the energy that's being stuck in, in, and embedded in the, in the tissues. And then there's, a, there's an automatic shift in cognition. Yeah, that's right. And like, uh, yeah, so you're talking about energy psychology, right? Mm-hmm. There's a whole great field out there. Like you used to be really, in the, maybe you still are, but the tapping, mm-hmm. yeah, that- EFT. Yeah. EFT, emotional freedom, freedom technique. technique. Yeah. yeah. That's a great way. If I'm ever stuck in freeze, yeah, I just I just start tapping my forehead, my face, above my lip, my chin. Mm-hmm. And it, it it does magical things to the to the nervous system and it and it could kind of break up that freeze response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the most important thing is being aware, being aware that I'm in freeze. Right, right, because it could be really scary. It could be really confusing, and that's not when blood is like flowing to the prefrontal cortex. You yeah. know, when we're in that sympathetic nervous system charge, yeah. that fight or flight response, blood's going to the amygdala. It's going to the primitive brain, the reptilian brain, and um, and like awareness of that. You know, so they call it also the disorganized pattern. Like when we start. Um, I actually have this sometimes because of my trauma, when I get overactivated, I'll start just feeling really confused. So I've learned to be clear that I'm confused. Mm. And that very often will snap me out of it. It'll take a couple minutes, but I'll just, I'll just be okay with being confused and just be clear that I'm confused. That's my trauma response. This is how it's manifesting. Okay, now's not the time to process anything with my wife. Now's not the time to solve any problems because my brain is offline. Now's the time for me to take five, take a pause. And, you know, I love putting a hand on my heart. I could feel my breath, feel into the confusion. I could just tell myself, I'm, tell myself it's okay. You know, feel my feet on the ground. And then I move right, right back into the zone of tolerance, the window of tolerance. Hmm. Yeah. And just to put out a, a awareness to parents of 
just to have the cognition and the awareness of how creating such a, in society, such a busy life to get our kids to be successful and to make them whole people, to, you know, get them involved in so many different activities, that can can create this push of these little T's that the kids don't have a chance to just feel themselves, to just be in in their own energy field, that they're constantly on the move. And because what, what, when I'm seeing people later on that um, are just constant doers, they were pushed in some way um, as a kid to constantly do. They weren't encouraged they weren't appreciated for maybe daydreaming, for actually saying, I don't know if I really wanna do soccer. No, you should do soccer, you need to do soccer because as opposed to you know, helping parents um, uh, instill trust in their, in their child's knowing and their child's own intuition, I think is, is really important to, to not create a lot of these small T's that society is kind of pushing on us to absolutely and if the foundational goal of parenting is co-regulation then i think that parent is going to be successful at parenting right so co-regulation meaning okay how is my nervous system and my child's nervous system working together right now like if my kid's nervous system right now, if they don't wanna play soccer, let me just get curious and just ask them, hey, what's going on for you with soccer? What is it that you don't like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, getting really curious. Then that kid can feel, um, that kid can reach a little deeper and then talk about some of the things that's going on yeah. for them. And then some problem solving. And for the parents to see, is, is there a trigger about them? If their child's not doing all these things and not successful, what's the reflection on them? Did they grow up around parents that constantly ex- push them to excel? And what does that mean for status and, and so forth? So I think parents need to reflect how, how much they're pushing on their own self-worth to what their child is doing and what they're not doing instead of really respecting and allowing their child to develop and and become um, an autonomous human being. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, man. Relationship and it is just such a beautiful practice. Yeah, and, and and opportunity, really. You know, for for deepening this life experience and connecting in to someone's potential and support. You know, and. and I just really value the work that you do, Prepo, and mm. you are so good at it, man. Mm. I, I just I just want to give you so much praise for what you bring to mm. so many people through the podcast and through your private uh, psychotherapy and coaching businesses and how you show up with people and, and for our community. It's a really beautiful thing. I think mm. relationships are, are just so vital, vital to the, strength and the resiliency and the beauty of our of our community. So mm. thank you for the work that you do, my man. Mm. Ah, I'll take that in. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And also I just want to before we end to even note, you inspire me by how 
you cultivate your communal relationships, how you and Robin gather people in these beautiful celebratory gatherings. You have so many gatherings at your home or at your business. Um, and uh, you step aside from shining as the, the uh, focal point of it. And you really allow people to gather together and, and share themselves. So you're an inspiration in that. I'm, that's not really an area where, where I shine. I'm a little bit, you know, in the background of that and um, never really was the person that gathered people together, more one-on-one -on -one, uh, focus. So I, I'm inspired by, by how you show up in the community. So thank you, brother. I'll take that too, <laughs> Thank you. Sweet. All right, brother. Well, thank you for this conversation. It's getting dark out now, that daylight saving time. So we're yeah. going to go stroll, get something to eat, and uh, enjoy the rest of the evening. So I appreciate you making the time. Absolutely, my man. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. Love you, buddy. Love you, bro. Relationships. Let's talk about it is a production of HeartShare Counseling and Consulting PC of Asheville, North Carolina. For more about licensed counselor Prebo Teplitsky, visit prebo.com. Theme music by Adi the Monk. This content is intended for informational purposes only, is not a substitute for professional counseling or therapy, medical advice, diagnosis or treatment, and does not constitute medical or other professional advice. <laughs>